Thanks for that, Martin. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see some of you. Are you, are you nice and warm out there? Nice toasty warm? Oh, good. <laughs> good morning to all of those of you who are, who are participating from home online. Just by way of reminder, as Martin mentioned, we are in a series right now called The Lifestyle of Jesus, Following a Different Way. And we're looking at the Gospel of Luke at scenes specifically where we don't necessarily see Jesus teaching overtly, but we see him living a certain way, embodying a certain type of posture, taking on certain disciplines. We're looking at Jesus lived, in other words, and how we might be able to actually follow in his example. Because when he says to his disciples over and over and over, follow me, follow me, that's not just a sort of listen to my teaching and maybe learn a few things, or oh yeah, I'll look at my calendar, I can do Thursday. It's not that kind of a following. This is a whole different way of living. This is something that we are called to do 24-7. The disciples are asked to follow him, follow in his footsteps, do as he does, live as he lives. We, as I mentioned last week, are interns under Jesus, apprentices under Jesus, not just following what he says, but also how he lives and what he does, following his example. I used the analogy last week of, of the way of our North American society, of our Western society, being like a fast-flowing river with a, with a rushing current that just tugs and pulls at us and washes away all of our little efforts to live in Jesus' way, to live a different way. Because if we marginalize our faith, which, which we so often do, if we, if we don't make it our priority, if we, if we separate it off into little bits and pieces, and we, we do a little bit here, and we do a little bit here, and we do a little bit here, those, are, those little efforts, as, as well as they are, they are, they're like little ping pong balls that just get thrown into this cultural river, into this fast-flowing river that just gets pulled down it. They get swept away and lost in the rivers of, of our busyness of our hurrying, of our rushing around, trying to make ourselves feel better, trying to, to fulfill every possible obligation in order to feel like we're enough, in order to feel like we, we, need to, we can prove ourselves, that we can get around to everything we want to do. And all these little efforts just get lost in that because that's, that's the bigger narrative that's actually defining our lives, not the way of Jesus. He doesn't want us to live that way. Actually, he wants to take us away from all of that to live into the rhythms of grace, not tied to our own expectations or others' expectations and obligations so that we can never feel like enough. He, he doesn't want that. He wants to show us the way to truly live because he is the way to truly live. And so following him is a 24-7 activity. It's something we do all the time. It's something we're seeking to do all the time with every part of our being, which is why we're spending 12 weeks talking about it. So this morning we are looking at just a few chapters in Luke chapter 3. So if you brought a Bible with you or if you have your Bible at home, you can turn to Luke chapter 3, just looking at a few verses, starting at verse 21. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying... Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Now, I know that that was only just three verses, but there's a lot of substance there. So we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking it this morning. All four gospel writers actually include Jesus' baptism into their narratives, and Luke's happens to be the shortest. But it's, it's just, like I said, it's just packed with substance. So the question this morning then is, what's going on here? What, what, what's going on in this passage? And what do we see Jesus doing? Verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Okay, so a bit of context here. What we see here going on, John the Baptist started a movement, right? He started a renewal movement here uh, for the people of Israel. He's, he's telling the people of Israel that God's going to do something. God's coming and God's going to do something. And so we need to make a pathway for him, a pathway of holiness, of righteousness. We need to be prepared for his coming. And so he's calling the people to a baptism of repentance, Because it was well understood at that time that it was because of Israel's sin and constant rebellion that God hadn't come back, that Yahweh wasn't in his temple, that they were still existing in a sort of exile. They were still in slavery to the Roman Empire. And it was because of their sin and their rebellion. And although baptisms weren't totally unheard of, uh, there were lots of renewal movements going on in that day. John is doing something new in the sense here that he is... He's calling the people to repent because of their sins, because Yahweh is coming. He is coming. And an appropriate pathway needs to be prepared for him so that the people are ready for his coming. Okay? How absurd is it then that Jesus comes forward for baptism? Think about that. How absurd is it that Jesus comes forward for baptism? The only one on the shores of the Jordan that day who did not need to repent and be baptized. The only one that these repentances and baptisms was actually for. Yet he comes forward for baptism. And Luke is already showing us here, this is the thing, Luke's already showing us that Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. He's identifying himself with us. He's entering into our narrative from the very beginning, right? This is what starts Jesus' ministry. From the very beginning, he's walking alongside men and women in their brokenness, coming alongside of them. And as as mind-boggling as that is for us to grasp and to understand, that's not actually what we're focusing our time on this morning. I just thought that was really neat and you needed to understand that, but we're actually focusing on the second part of verse 21 here, where it says this. So he's, he's, everyone else has been baptized, Jesus gets baptized, but then it says this, and as he was praying. You ever noticed that before? I'll, I'll admit, I never, I know, Jamie, I, 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 I never actually noticed that before until I was looking through these, these verses. As he was what? As he was praying. Yes, Jesus is getting baptized, and that's incredibly important, and we could spend a whole sermon series talking about the importance of that baptism and what it means for us. But what's the catalytic moment here? What's the moment that just sets everything off into motion in this passage? As he was praying. 
almost as if Jesus waded into the Jordan River, sat beside John, and just lifted his arms up in prayer, in communion with the Father. And it's out of that communion that things start to happen. Verse 21, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. In other words, the, the skies were opened. The way that they thought about the heavens, the skies and the heavens were kind of the same thing, right? Because the heavens was where God dwelt or the gods dwelt. And the skies, that was the heavens, okay? So when, we, when we're talking about the heavens being open, we're likely talking about the clouds parting or, or some form of that happening, which actually is alluding back to the words of Isaiah in chapter 64 when he says this, Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that the mountains would tremble before you. Oh, that you, would, that you would break open the heavens. That you would open the heavens and come down. So as Jesus is communing with the Father, God is, is, is rending open the heavens and connecting with earth. Which is always what the biblical hope was, right? That God would come down and dwell with his people. It's what, this is why the first thing after, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the, from the Garden of Eden... The heartbreak there is that they are separated from God and God can no longer dwell with his people. And so the whole biblical narrative is about regaining that communion with God, that he can come and he can dwell with his people. And so as Jesus is praying and the heavens are open, as all this is happening, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. Which is actually another allusion back to Isaiah. Isaiah was a pretty smart guy. Where it says this, it's talking about the suffering servant. Here is my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. So what we're seeing here is that as Jesus is praying and, communion with the, and communing with the Father, and the Spirit is moving and coming down, Jesus is also being affirmed in who he is. Why? Because, well, the dove was actually, we see this in Psalm 74, so I think, this is, I think this is pretty accurate, but the dove was actually occasionally used as a symbol for Israel. And so this could be a way of Luke saying to us that Jesus is now taking on the identity of Israel, which was actually to be God's son. To be a son of God or God's son meant that you were that God's representative on earth. You bore that God's image on earth. And so for Jesus to take on that, it's to take on Israel's identity, to be God's representative, which is what they were always supposed to be, but they weren't. Jesus is God's representative, his true image on earth, which is confirmed in the second half of verse 22. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And I, I just love the way then that Luke tags on at the end of this, right before he goes into Jesus' genealogy, that Jesus was about, you know, 30 years old when he began his ministry. So, you know, think of Curtis, but, you know, maybe someone a little holier. <laughs> 30 years old when he began his ministry. And, and, and then he says this, and he was, he was the son, so it was thought, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, of Joseph. Why does he do that? Well, because he's just told us whose son Jesus really is. And so we have all of this going on in this passage, right? We've got a messianic identity, 
an association with sinners, fulfillment of scripture, the long-awaited spirit of God coming down, God doing something, a movement happening. And yet, where does it all begin? The moment that Jesus prays. Jesus' prayer is the catalyst for connecting with the Father, urging a movement of the Holy Spirit, and being reminded of his own identity. Connecting with the Father, communing with the Father, urging a movement of the Holy Spirit, and being reminded of his own identity. So then, if that's what we see him doing, if that's, what, if that's how he prays and how committed he is to prayer and what his goal is in prayer, if that's what's happening for him, how then are we to follow in his way? Now, we naturally don't have time this morning to speak on all aspects of prayer and everything there is to speak about prayer because that, of course, also could be its own sermon series. So we're just going to focus, we're going to highlight a few things this morning that specifically come out of this passage. And it's those three things that I just mentioned. That we too in prayer are seeking to be in communion with the Father, urging movements of the Holy Spirit, seeking to see the, the Spirit moving, and being reminded also of our own identity. Okay? Those three things. First one. I mentioned last week that Jesus never seemed to be in much of a hurry. He never seemed to be rushing around. And I, I think that this is why. Because his whole goal for existence, his whole goal for living, his whole reason for living was to be in communion with his Father. Which is very different than some of the ways that, some of the strange ways that we often think about prayer, as if it's sort of a, a rubber stamp on our holiness, something that we do quickly, you know, before a meeting, like, okay, yeah, we've got to, sh you know, shove a prayer in here. We probably should. We probably should pray. Did anybody want to pray? Uh, okay, well, I guess you should pray. It's this... <laughs> When you, when you think about it, we have some very strange ways of thinking about prayer. Actually, it reminded me of the movie Bruce Almighty. I don't know if you've seen it. This is like early 2000s. But Jim Carrey is tasked with playing God, being God for a few days. Of course, God is played by Morgan Freeman. But <laughs> uh, Jim Carrey has to be God for a few days. And the first morning that he's tasked with this identity, he goes to his you know, 90s computer, opens up his email, and there's just this flood of emails, prayer emails, of course, of all these people that have sent God an email, because that's, of course, what it is. We send God emails or text messages of what we want. And as he answers them, more just keep coming and more just keep coming of all these people that need something from him. And so he decides to just select all and reply yes to everybody. And then, of course, you know, 10,000 people win the lottery and there's chaos. <laughs> but that's, that's such an, a different way, right? of thinking about prayer. It makes you realize what actually the world out there thinks about prayer, right? Like it's some sort of email or a text message to God. Like we only talk to him when we need something from him. Sort of like he's a, what do you call those things? A, a vending machine that, you know, you stick your little prayer money in and you're, you're expecting something to pop out right away. We want an immediate answer. We expect an immediate answer. Prayer is only something to do when we want something, right? It's actually, when you think about it, it's actually a very uh, consumeristic way of thinking about prayer. 
I only, I'm only going to talk to you when I need something. Now, I, I, I don't want to be too fierce there. Right? Our prayer life can certainly involve those elements and can start there. But that's not how we mature in following Jesus' example. Because what he was doing was he was constantly seeking communion with the Father. That's what Jesus needed most. That's what he needed. Communion with his Father. Henry Nouwen puts it this way when he's describing this relationship of the Trinity. He says that there is a a divine community that exists in the Trinity where the Father loves the Son and pours himself out for the Son. And then the Son is then loved by the Father and returns all he is to the Father. And the Spirit then is this love that exists between the two of them, embracing the Father and the Son together. And this eternal community of love, Nouwen says, is the center and the source of Jesus' spiritual life, his own spiritual life, a a life of undivided attentiveness to the Father in the spirit of love. And the goal then, if if we think about it that way, if that was Jesus' goal to be constantly entered into this, this relationship, this community of divine love, then his goal for us then is nothing less than to enter us into that same community. That same communion. That is the heartbeat of prayer. That we, like Jesus, would seek to enter into this divine community. There's actually an icon. uh, It's called Rublev's icon. I think we can have it up on the screen there. It's this image of, actually comes out of Genesis 18, where those three angels, those three messengers, visit with Abraham. And it's an image that shows them sitting around a table and, and what, this, what this icon has often been interpreted to display is actually the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit visiting, seated at this table. And you'll notice the way that they are seated, it's almost as if there's a space opened up for you that you can then come and approach the table and enter into a conversation that's already going on. And I've often thought of this as, I actually have it in my office, I have one, a little one in my office, as a reminder that this is the constant invitation for us, is to enter into this divine community of love, to come to the table, that that's been opened up to us. You know, this is why often... Uh, Christians have often found journaling to be a really helpful exercise as, as you sort of write out your thoughts with God. If it becomes, those who have found it most fruitful are those who make it a prayerful exercise. Because sometimes when we're just speaking or listening in prayer, it can be difficult to think of words. And so writing them out can actually be really helpful. And, and, and as if you're processing your, your thoughts out with Jesus. Frank Laubach was, a, was an American missionary earlier in the early 2000s, or sorry, early 1900s, early 20th century. And he often uh, focused on or witnessed to this constant communion with God. This was his whole life's endeavor. In 1937, he, he wrote in his diary a New Year's resolution, and it said this, God, I want to give you every minute of this year. I shall try to keep you in mind every moment of my waking hours. I shall try to let you be the speaker and direct every word. I shall try to learn your language. And three months later, as he was noting down his progress, how he was doing in practicing God's presence, he said this, Thank you that the habit of constant conversation grows easier each day. 
I really do believe, he says, that all thought can be conversations with thee. In other words, okay, Lord, this isn't coming immediately and this isn't coming easily, but it's coming. And I'm thankful. Richard Foster says this, Seek to discover as many ways as possible to keep God constantly in mind. The desire, he says, to practice the presence of God is the secret of all the saints. You know, this is why Paul says in, in, in many of his epistles, pray constantly in everything. Make your requests to God. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. We read that and we go, yeah, 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 okay, that's fine. But no, this is, it's because Paul was inhabiting this kind of a posture of not just praying to God and, and speaking with God and listening from God when we need something, but on all occasions, always, in everything. You know, you, you know when someone routinely practices the presence of God. You just know it, right? They hold themselves differently, whether they're gardening or going for a walk or whatever task they're doing. They just, they inhabit a sort of peace. There's an assurance about them. They've been in communion with him. They, they, they shed a different kind of light. They are, as one church father said, rarely in prayer for more than five minutes, but rarely out of prayer for more than five minutes. Wouldn't that be a goal to strive for? Again, this doesn't mean that we need to stop or lessen our activities to, to create more space for prayer. That's not the point. That's actually catering to the Western way. The idea here is the exact opposite, that we infuse prayer into everything that we do. We don't separate it from our tasks. We don't separate it from our work. We infuse prayer. We, we walk through our tasks and our daily activities communing with God. We never let go of him, in other words. He's with us the entire day. We bring him into each activity. We take on, we discover a rhythm of prayer as we work and through our work not separated from it. And, you know, if we get distracted, that's okay. We bring him into that as well. And, and we laugh with him at our terribly short attention spans. Like, that's okay. I had a spiritual director once tell us, you know, if, if you're praying and, and your brain goes off into left field, it's okay. Don't get mad at yourself and uh, come back to it. Bring God into that. Bring God into your distraction. And let, let him carry you back to a place of focus. We are constantly training our hearts to be in ongoing prayer, ongoing communion with God. And when we do that, we start to see him everywhere. Our impulse will be to bring him into every situation, just like Jesus did. You know, even when we're in conversations with non-Christians, you know, in our hearts, you know, preferably not out loud, but in our hearts, we infuse those moments with prayer because we want to see the Holy Spirit moving in conversations especially with those who don't know Jesus and trusting that he's able to move in that because yes prayer is the catalyst for communing with God but it is also secondly the means by which we see God at work we see movements of the Holy Spirit we're attentive to him and so we see him moving and acting we see things happen it might not always be what we want to see happen 
or, or in the timing that we want to see it happen. But something always happens, either in us or in someone else. When I was searching through Luke in preparation for this series, I noticed that Luke actually has a really special emphasis on prayer. We see, we see Jesus praying a lot in the Gospel of Luke, but not just that. Not just that. Every time that Jesus prays, something always happens. In chapter 6, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to pray. He spends the whole night praying with the Father. And when the morning comes, he calls all of his disciples together and he selects 12 of them to be his apostles. In chapter 9, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, looks up to heaven, prays a prayer of thanksgiving, and over 5,000 people are fed. Soon after that, we see him praying in a private place. And then suddenly, he's asking his disciples who they think he is, which leads to Peter's declaration that he is the Messiah. In chapter, oh, actually still in chapter 9, Jesus goes up onto a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And as he was praying, there's that phrase again, as he was praying, he's transfigured before them. In chapter 11, Jesus is praying in a certain place, and when he's finished, the disciples then ask him to teach them how to pray. You want to you wanna just guess what Jesus was praying about? In chapter 22, Jesus withdraws from the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays for God's will to be done. And immediately after that is when the dominoes start falling. And let's not forget that even when Jesus is on the cross, he's praying for his own enemies. And then when there's nothing left in him, there's nothing more that he can do, what do we still see him doing? He's telling the rebel next to him that there's a place for him in paradise. And then he directs a final prayer to the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And again, something happens. Because immediately the centurion who just has watched how Jesus has died. He's just seen how Jesus has died. He praises God. And he says, surely this man was innocent. Every time that Jesus prays, something always happens. And this is just in the Gospel of Luke. What could be the impact then for we? Let's just imagine for a second. What could be the impact for us? For we who have the spirit of Jesus Christ living and dwelling within us. If we followed Jesus in the way that he prays. Imagine what it would do for ourselves and for others if we spent our days in prayer. Praying over each person that we interacted with lifting them up into that divine community of love? Do we believe that things might actually happen in and for them, that God maybe wants us to see the outcomes, the fruit of our prayers, even more than we do? You know, when, uh, when Billy Graham was traveling across the states and doing all these revival movements along the way, every time before he entered into a city, he would send a group of people to pray over it. Danny recently told me this story that when we had the 2010 Olympics here in Vancouver, or over there in Vancouver, that there was a whole grouping of churches that came together and put together this 24-7 prayer, prayer event, that, that we would be praying throughout the entire time. Why? Because the world was coming to Vancouver. So what else should we do 
then pray. Pray for a movement of the Spirit. The founder of of Open Doors Ministry, Brother Andrew, uh, he used to smuggle Bibles across the Iron Curtain back when it was still standing. And he said that he experienced the power of prayer on a daily basis. He said this, if we were aware of the full potential of our prayers, we'd get down on our knees a hundred times a day and ask him for things that would change the world. Imagine for a second if every single one of us prayed before a Sunday morning service, before we came here, before we tuned in online. There is nothing more powerful for a community of Christ followers than to have brothers and sisters praying over one another. So, in Jesus praying then, we see continual communication, continual communion with the Father. We see movements of the Holy Spirit that something always happens in prayer. And lastly, and I'll finish with this, our text this morning shows us that in prayer, we are reminded of who we are. And more specifically, we are reminded of whose we are. One scholar says this in in speaking specifically about this passage, that, that Luke wants to show us here a God who speaks. Not just a God that listens and hears us, but a God who speaks. A God that has broken into this world and that in the midst of all of this noise and all these babbling voices, a world, there's a world that's aching to hear from heaven. And this, this God speaks. And as he speaks, or I should say, he speaks because he wants to know, he wants us to know whose we are and to whom we belong. In prayer, we are reminded that we belong in life and in death to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In prayer, we are reminded that we belong in his household, that we belong at his table, that we belong in his family, that we are identified as Jesus was, as his beloved child, as his beloved children. Just as Jesus himself was reminded and affirmed so that he could go and be God's image to the world. Be God's representative to the world and bear witness to his love. When we, when we actually remember our own baptisms, when we remember and seek to be refreshed by his spirit in prayer and to listen to the quiet voice of heaven, we are reminded of the love and the delight that God has for us. And this is why, actually, for, for many of our, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted on a daily basis, whose, whose lives are under threat on a regular basis, the only thing, usually, the, yeah, if, if the first thing, if not the only thing that they ever ask for is prayer. Pray for us, they say. Why? Because it's through prayer that they remember whose they are that they remember that God is carrying them, that they actually feel the prayers and the sense of God carrying them, holding them, nourishing them. They remember that they have not been forgotten. 
But as they themselves will often remind us, all the powers that be are against us in this endeavor. The last thing that the evil one wants for us is to be in constant communion with the Father and to be reminded of our own identities in him. It's why we are constantly tempted, and I use that word intentionally, we are constantly tempted to rush through our days, to hurry, to fit everything in, to fulfill every possible obligation, to fill even more in and try to fit and, and cater to everyone's expectations and understandings. We, try to, we f- try to fit everything in, and yet we still never feel like we're doing enough. Trying to follow in the lifestyle of Jesus then, in the midst of all of that busyness, is so difficult. Because in the midst of all of that, the presence of God seems hardly noticeable. But, there's hope. Because if we are faithful to following him, when we seek him first with all we've got, we, we infuse him into every part of our day, then, as Nouwen puts it, a new hunger will make itself known in us. A new hunger will start to build within us. And that, he says, is the first sign of God's presence. The hunger, a thirst, a desire, an, an insatiable thirst for Jesus. It's my prayer this morning that every single one of us would have that hunger developed within us. I'm going to finish here with an image. It's an image, it's a painting by Jules Atkinson called For God So Beloved. And the background is meant to depict uh, contemporary footage from war-torn Middle Eastern, uh, sort of a a war-torn Middle Eastern context. And it depicts the tender moment when the father speaks words of delight over his son while the spirit dove descends on him. And it's just, it's a moment of sheer belovedness as Jesus outstretched his arms. Like, just look at that image. He's got his arms outstretched in complete surrender. Complete surrender to the father who he knows has called him his beloved son. And it's the same posture that he's going to inhabit when he takes on the weight of the world's brokenness and dies in our stead. I just want to take about a minute here. Just, just look at this image for about a minute in prayerful, in prayerful silence. And then I'll close. living God. We pray that we too would be able to outstretch our arms towards you in complete surrender. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May you descend upon us as well to fill our hearts and our minds with your words, with your delight, with your favor. 
inspire us anew this morning, Lord, to seek you with everything we have. All for your sake, for your name, and for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.